Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Well, this week on Ask Dr. Dawn, well, it's the show before Halloween, right? So... I forgot to bring in my rubber glove so I could snap it and laugh evilly, which is my usual Halloween shtick. So we'll just have to go with some scary stories. So let's, we'll be starting out with the Black Death and how it drove human evolution and an analysis suggesting that living in a politically conservative state may be hazardous to your health. And, of course, our Gene of the Week feature, this week's Gene, Fox 03, the forkhead box gene. you got to love these genetic control factor genes. They all have great-sounding rock band names, Forkhead, NF-Kappa. I mean, I could just, we are Forkhead. I could just see, you know, the garage band when I think about that name. Let's move on to Gene of the Week, the forkhead Box 03, or Fox 03 for its nickname. This is a very, very pivotal gene. It plays a central role in, wait for it, the molecular basis of longevity. This is the gene, guys, that if you've got two good copies, you it's yours to blow. But living past 100, pretty much everybody who does that has that variant of the forkhead box 03. Uh, It's also, besides uh, the many things I'm about to tell you about, it's the main trigger for pruning cells. In other words, through expressing the genes that are necessary for old cells to die so new cells can replace them. So rejuvenation, right? SNPs in this are single nucleotide polymorphisms have consistent associations with this longevity, but also they play an important role in suppressing inflammatory cytokines. That's IL-12, IL-6, IL-1, the things that you may remember were part of the alphabet soup, well, alphanumeric soup, to be entirely accurate, that we got to hear about a lot in 2020. Uh, The cytokine storm, in other words, These are inflammatory cytokines. Uh, Fox 03, forkhead box 03. I'm going to call him Foxo because, hey, we're friends. Foxo uh, actually increases the production of the pivotal anti-inflammatory cytokine IL-10. And interestingly enough, I just found out that I can order a cytokine panel And I'm starting to do that in my people who appear to have uh, inflammation or the people with autoimmune disease. I think this is going to be a great way to track whether my natural or unnatural therapies are doing something to help these individuals. So I'm pretty excited about uh, having a test that I can do that will provide that feedback loop. Uh, We'll be talking about some of the things that upregulate FOXO3 and uh, help with Well, they don't upregulate the gene, but they help compensate for not having the good copy. We'll come to that in a moment. But before we finish talking about Foxo's 
characteristics I also have to mention. It's super important in glucose homeostasis and the metabolism of fat in the liver, what we call the liver muscle axis. So basically, the muscles are always taking up fat and to burn and glucose to burn, and they're one of the major sites that we burn energy. And the liver is always regulating so many things and also getting rid of trash. These are all key characteristics in our ability to live a long life and a long and healthy life at that. The FOXO is also a sensor of endoplasmic reticulum stress. This is one of the things that does us in when that basic uh, mechanism of our cytoplasm uh, gets involved with all of cellular functioning. So super important. And when you look at FOXO3, what you find is that it is triggered by stress. Let me say that again. It is triggered by stress. It is the central processing for stress-reduced both resilience and vulnerability. And it's triggered by all kinds of stress. Any uh, reduction in uh, nutrition, any growth factor reduction, metabolic uh, stressors of any kind, that would include cognitive stress, psychological stress, lack of sleep, uh, excessive exercise, overwork, you're getting it, right? And also, of course, environmental pollutants of all sorts. So it's the central switching station, and it is involved in just about everything. As I said, it's involved in programmed cell death. It's also involved in keeping your stem cells healthy, your immune system healthy, cellular differentiation, which, of course, is how we don't get cancer, and induction of death of cells like cancer cells that need to die, balancing octavative stress, breaking down reactive oxygen species, uh, eating up garbage, autophagy, which is one of the ways that we uh, clean our cells, and gluconeogenesis, which is how we survive starvation. It also protects us, you might guess, against cardiovascular disease, cancer, neurological disorders like dementia, and type 2 diabetes, all of these are highly influenced by inflammation. So by now, you should be salivating. You know, what's the good gene? What's the bad gene? Well, if you have two copies of the G allele, you have increased amounts of FOXO. That's really good, both higher mRNA levels and higher protein levels of all the good things. It's got a high correlation with longevity. the, a resistance to uh, diabetes and a resistance to insulin sensitivity, uh, to reduced insulin sensitivity. And all across the board, it's good for you. If you have two copies of the T allele, you have a reduced ability to resolve inflammation. I bet you that that's associated with worse inflammation in COVID-19. I would absolutely bet that because Part of what COVID-19 does is it cuts out another one of our very important inflammatory signals, the ACE2 receptor, damages it. So that can't produce anti-inflammatory cytokines. Uh, It's important if you have the TT allele to do things. Intermittent fasting is one of the things you can do. 
regular moderate movement, walk like walking an hour or more a day. We're talking about that. Cold water immersion, maybe doing the sauna and then doing the cold plunge for you or the hot tub and then the cold plunge is going to actually prolong your life. And last but not least, making sure you get from seven to nine hours of sleep every night. And that's those are the sweet spots. More than nine hours is actually associated with increased risk of heart disease. But there are some supplements you can take. They're ones that you've probably heard of. Uh, CoQ10 helps with the mitochondrial uh, oxidation and reactive oxygen species that happen if you have the TT allele, the two bad copies. Resveratrol, probably at a dose of at least 50 to 100 milligrams. Curcumin, the, old, the stuff that you'll find um, all over the place uh, now, but is a sub-component uh, of turmeric, a well-known Indian spice. Uh, curcumin is the active anti-inflammatory extract there, and it's extremely powerful. Alpha-lipoic acid, which is an antioxidant that improves insulin resistance and also is... Uh, really helpful to protect the liver. So I didn't give the curcumin dose. You want about 700, 500 to 700 milligrams of curcumin to get anywhere. Alpha lipoic acid, 150 to 300 milligrams. And quercetin, which I use very, very regularly in my patients with allergies uh, because it stabilizes the mast cells. I think we talked about that maybe a month ago on the program. Quercetin, around 1,000 milligrams a day, maybe as little as 500, depending upon whether you have allergies or not. Those are all established, really good inflammation-mitigating factors, which may, in someone who has the bad copy of this DNA, help give them a little extra longevity boost. Because remember, most of those people who lived to 100, who are living to 100 right now, didn't know any of this stuff, so they weren't able to do anything for themselves uh, in terms of supplements, nor were these things available in the kind of concentrated doses that we currently have. Now, I don't own a, a supplement company, but I am a true believer that if we can use a molecule that exists in nature, that we co-evolved with our risk of side effects from that molecule are just massively lower and our risks of adverse drug interactions for the most part, and there are a few exceptions there which are known uh, with respect to, say, some cancer drugs. Uh, we want these antioxidants. We want these other things. But, of course, if we're fighting cancer, we need to take them in a way that doesn't protect the cancer cells. And that's also known how to do. So it's not simple, but it's effective. All right. So I promised you a bunch of stories, and we're going to deliver on that promise right now. Conservative state policies generally associated with higher mortality, a recent study found. It was published in the Open Access Journal, PLOS1. And of course, we have a very scary election coming up the, the week after Halloween. Uh, could be could have been better timed. It would have been nice if it was like two days after Halloween, but, you know, anyway, it's not the week after, excuse me, it's yeah, about, uh, just about that, eight days 
so this study looked at eight different policy domains. Gun safety, labor laws, and tobacco were among those. Let's start out by saying that within the United States, life expectancy differs markedly across geographic areas. So in 2019, it ranged from 74.4 years in Mississippi, life expectancy at birth, to 80.9 years in Hawaii. And Americans die younger than people in most other high-income countries. And this new work, they used 1999 to 2019 vital statistics, and they calculated state-level age-adjusted mortality rates. And they looked at death from all causes, but also they sub did a sub-analysis for cardiovascular disease, alcohol suicide, and drug poisoning. And they looked specifically at adults who were younger when they died, ages 25 to 64, people whose life expectancy was at least another 10 years, no matter where they lived. They also looked at state data on eight policy domains where the state's policies were scored uh, on a zero to one conservative to liberal continuum. So you could have, this is a 0.4 uh, policy, or this is a 0.8 policy, and the higher the number, the more liberal the policy. The analysis revealed that more liberal policies on the environment, gun safety, labor, economic taxes, and tobacco, so that's five out of the eight domains studied, were uh, lower with states that had liberal policies. However, for marijuana, more conservative policies were associated with lower mortality. And I'm thinking, driving while stoned, that's what I'm thinking. Don't drive while stoned. Okay, strong associations were found between gun safety policies and suicide mortality among men, and between labor policies and alcohol-induced mortality in men and women. And I'm thinking labor policies also includes how much unemployment and for how long do you get unemployment insurance and between economic and tobacco, actually both economic and tobacco tax policies and cardiovascular disease mortality. uh, Simulations suggested, and I love this part, so that's why I'm going to read it to you. They, if we changed all the policies in all the states to a fully liberal orientation, uh, in 2019, we would have saved 171,030 lives. And if we changed them to a fully conservative orientation in 2019, it would have cost 217,635 lives. So you're used now to big numbers of people dying because you've been probably bombarded in COVID data. So I think... That's a pretty interesting and somewhat scary story. Perfect for Halloween. So the Black Death was the most lethal pandemic in the history of humanity. Uh, In Europe, it killed 30 to 50 percent of the population within a relatively short period of several years. That was in, uh, it swept through North Africa and Eurasia in the mid-14th century and hit Europe shortly thereafter. It really, really was a devastating disease. And 
Europeans living at the time of the Black Death were particularly vulnerable because they had had no recent exposure to the bacteria that causes it, Yersinia pestis. And as waves of the pandemic occurred over and over again through the centuries, mortality rates at each wave decreased. Vulnerable people had been killed off before they could breed. It's very interesting that four DNA variants in particular uh, seem to have been more common after the Black Death and may have contributed to survival. But the protection afforded by those variants could have come at a very high cost. Today, two of these gene variants are associated with an increased risk of autoimmune disorders like Crohn's disease and rheumatoid arthritis. Increased immunity, you see, has a price, and that price is autoimmunity, self-loathing, if you will, uh, the product of a paranoid immune system which sees danger where there is none. Think about some of the stories I've talked with you about over the last six months regarding immune checkpoint inhibitors and cancer. Think about the cytokine storm we heard so much about in spring of 2020. And also a really interesting phenomenon that uh, happens in bacterial sepsis called disseminated intravascular coagulation. And I just want to riff on that one for a moment. It's only happens in sepsis. And what happens is that part of what the immune system does, as we know from COVID, is that it increases your coagulation. In DIC, all of your blood coagulates all at once. Boom. And then the clots melt very rapidly. Boom. So at that moment, your blood starts circulating again. And you don't die, but you have used up all of your clotting proteins and they are very one use proteins. So once they get triggered, they can't be triggered again. So you have to go build them. And so during that period of time, while the liver is rebuilding the clotting proteins, the person's hemorrhage. This is what one of what we're seeing in severe Ebola. And I'm sure you've heard about that, but that's really what's happening. They're getting this coagulation from the virus in this case, and then they bleed. So the researchers are fascinated with Black Death, as they should be. And as they started looking, and now we have all of this DNA analysis. So a group led by Luis Barrero at the University of Chicago in Illinois hypothesized that maybe there was some genetic, maybe we could find a genetic trail of variation. So they looked at genetic variation in about 200 DNA samples that were isolated from the bones or teeth of individuals from the 14th century who lived before or after the plague. And they looked at people who died of plague. There's plenty of basically piles of bodies and catacombs that all died from plague. And they looked at people who died a few generations later of something else. And they found four DNA variants that seem to have been selected for during the Black Death. One variant in particular was interesting. They they looked at both the United Kingdom and Denmark, and in both of these locations, clearly probably not that much in that much travel between the two in the fourteenth century. So it argues that this occur, occurred in both locations independently. Uh, they found 
this gene called ERAP2. And there's a short version and a longer version of this gene. And if you have the long version, you produce a larger RNA molecule and you get a somewhat different protein coming out of that, the ERAP2 protein. Now, what does this protein do? Well, it controls macrophages and it triggers macrophages to engulf and digest bacteria. Once the bacteria is digested, it's cut into pieces by ERAP2 protein and then displayed on the surface of the macrophage as a signal to other immune cells. This is how your T cells learn to attack something because the macrophage waves the target and it also waves another trophic factor that causes T cells, which have not yet been committed to make any particular kind, to be attacking any particular type of thing, to become trained to smell and attack this particular protein. So speeding up that process and making it more efficient obviously helps you fight off a disease like the plague faster. So they decided, well, let's test this. And so they created macrophages with the longs and the short versions, and they put them in essentially a plate of nutrient and added plague bacteria to the plate, and they looked to see whether it made a difference. So people with two copies of the long version of ERAP2 are estimated to have had a 40 to 50% greater chance of survival from plague. But here's the rub. Aye, there's the rub. The protective ERAP2 gene variant is a known risk factor for Crohn's disease. And another of the variants that was basically promoted by the plague because it wasn't, it, it prevented people from dying from plague is associated with rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, SLE. So these variants are double-edged. Now, this is a powerful approach, and we can look at other genes. We can look at the, we can look at the dietary uh, genes. We can look at all sorts of things now that we have the ability to study uh, the body at this level. It's a very exciting time to be around, actually. So from the Black Plague to tumors and an interesting mechanism that uh, is something I think most doctors, uh, oncologists in particular, have seen, which is that in many patients you find the cancer and you do surgical removal and the and you maybe give follow-up chemotherapy if that's appropriate in that particular type of cancer because it's been shown to work. And then four or five years later, suddenly there are life-threatening metastases springing up, but only after the original tumor has been gone for a while. This is particularly common in breast cancer, and sometimes it can be 10 or 15 years before the metastases show up. And it's also seen particularly in skin cancer in people with with black or very dark skin. Uh, Patients call it concommitted, I mean, doctors call it concommitted tumor resistance, but we never really understood. It was, well, maybe there's a, 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 a suppressive factor being released from the tumor, but the research was stymied 
for a very long time because the same thing that is a pro-cancer gene or a pro-cancer gene product, more accurately, is a pro-metastasis gene product once the tumor is removed. And that seems paradoxical. So let's walk through this. By the time that a tumor gets to the size of a millimeter, it depends on being supplied by blood vessels. It can't be picked up on any of our current imaging technology. Its metabolic rate is too low to be shown on, say, a CT PET scan, which is our current way of looking for metastases. So it's a stealth tumor, and we can't see it. And it apparently can sit there and just subsist on the glucose and the oxygen that it can pick up from the interstitial fluid around other cells. So depending on the tumor environment, in general, we know that tumors release substances that promote the formation of new blood vessels or uh, factors that suppress them. And what these researchers at the German Research Center and the Mannheim Medical School of Heidelberg did was they looked at a particular messenger called angiopoietin-like 4. And this is a tumor that promotes the growth of new blood vessels. It's made by tumors. It causes new blood vessels to grow into the tumor, providing more raw material and energy so that the tumor can grow. So it is a cancer-promoting factor. But when you looked at progressive tumor growth, this is actually the most strongly correlated tumor stimulator. And if this messenger gets into the bloodstream, which of course, when it's produced in the tumor, it does, it gets cleaved by a by an enzyme in the uh, in the bloodstream, and the two pl- cleavage products are called ANGPTL4. So you're going to have an N in front of that, or a C. De- de- basically, says whether you're on the N side of the protein or the C side of the protein. And for reasons that are not fully understood, that N fragment is the one that persists. In, in serum, and that N fragment binds to a different receptor than the C frag, uh, than the intact molecule. And on the microtumors, the micrometastases, it actually suppresses the the tumor from growing. It prevents blood vessels from growing into the area. So tumors that if you pretreat um, mice with the N fragment, and then you give them something that should give them uh, metastases, you will find that they make fewer of them with, with the treatment of the N fragment. It's a suppressor for metastases. This is something that does not affect normal growing cells at all. It's part of the cancer life cycle. And it's an anti-cancer factor that blocks the growth of metastatic tumor uh, cells. So we could give this drug if we can come up with a drug based on this concept, we could give this persistently in people who have probable metastases based on what we know from the tumor and its characteristics. We could give them this drug without ever finding the metastases and keep those metastases in a dormant state. I will add that a lot of our current alternative cancer therapy is driven at making things uncomfortable for theoretical metastases that are sitting there but are not growing, keeping them essentially from developing the ability to call 
in new blood vessels by suppressing production of those factors, this would certainly outperform anything that the natural world has if we can bring it forward and make it a drug. So exciting news there. All right. Well, we're back. And um, I believe we've got both people online. I'm going to go to, uh, I'm I'm not sure which person I'm going to. So let's start with uh, eight phone two. Hello, this is Dr. Don. What's your name and uh, uh, where are you calling from? Curtis. Hi, Curtis. Okay, I had to I'm guess who Santa was. Cruz. Oh, so hello, Curtis. How's it going? Uh, pretty good, pretty good. Uh, I'm 70. I'll be 71 this November. My birthday is next month, and I've been kind of tracking my, uh, you know, my health. And so, uh, some kind of numbers that pop up in the lab work that never quite gets adequately explained to me. And so, I thought that I would ask you, and I'm sorry I don't have the information right in front of me. I was driving and I just pulled over Mm because I realized your program was on. But as I recall, I have had unusual numbers in blood chemistry going back to when I was like in my 30s. And it's not like out of control, but acinophil, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah, you are. And bilirubin, and I think that, and bilirubin, which I think has to do with your liver, I have a little bit of uh, anatomy, physiology training uh, from college days 30, 40 years ago. So things have changed a lot, but I just never, I think it has something to do with my liver or liver mm-hmm. function. Right. I'll, I'll explain that one for you. They're mysteries to me. Well, yeah. I'll tell you what's, what you probably have with the bilirubin first, because this is a, a very, very uh, common finding to have a little bit of an elevated bilirubin. And we used to measure direct and and indirect bilirubin, but the new machines just give us a total bilirubin. And so if we want to get more, if we want to really make the diagnosis, we have to order what's called a fractionated bilirubin. So you get something called a direct and an indirect. And that just has to do with uh, what's bound to the bilirubin. What the heck is bilirubin? Well, it's a breakdown product of hemoglobin. It's the constituent, the pigment, really, in bile that gives poop its lovely color, you know, and that sort of, uh, ba- that it's not the baby poop green, it's the, when it gets browner. And so your your liver takes in waste products, in this case, uh, broken down fragments of blood cells are taken and absorbed by the spleen and broken down and passed to the liver and the liver breaks it down further and produces bilirubin. And the bilirubin typically that's, co- that's in the bloodstream has gone through a process called conjugation. And then it's eliminated. Now, bilirubin is lipid soluble. That means you can't really store it well in the gallbladder because it's not going to stay there. It can soak like oil could soak through paper. If you put something really oily in plastic, it'll over time it'll soak through the plastic, right? But something wa- water won't, and so effectively, what the cells are like that. So your your gallbladder is just a a big bag lined with cells, and the bilirubin that can get into the, uh, the into the lining cells can then get into the outside cells and get back into the bloodstream. So if you have a total bilirubin that's high, 
and you don't have any other elevated liver enzymes, which is to say the the transaminases, those are ALT and AST. And if if those are fine and the bilirubin is always high since you were, you know, for 40 years, you, you probably are a slow conjugator. So you aren't processing that, that fat-soluble bilirubin in your liver into the non fat soluble the polar so it's a, it's an oil water situation you convert the oily into the watery now it's going to sit there in the gallbladder until you eat and the whole digestive process stimulates the uh, the gallbladder to contract if there's an if you there's enough fat in that meal to trigger it and at that point what happens is that you end up with a seriously elevated level sometimes just you know a couple points but it's always there and the doctor looks at it and shrugs because your other enzymes are fine, so he knows you don't have hepatitis or gallbladder or you know gallbladder attack, and that's not a big deal. It's actually important, and I'll get to that in a second. But that that's probably what you have. The name of this is Gilbert's disease. It's actually Gilbert, but I'll say Gilbert because then you'll know how to spell it, and you can look it up. And that's probably what you've got. Okay. The other thing that we're going to talk about was the eosinophils, and this one will be briefer. Uh, that's associated with allergies and parasites, and it's made in the bone marrow. And there's a setting for eosinophils, there's a setting for basophils, and there's a setting for the other, for the neutrophils. And, you know, phil means love in either Greek or Latin. And so uh, it is, I guess it's probably Greek. Anyway, that's just a color. It takes a certain dye, and that's where it gets the name. And that's not a big deal if the level are stable. There are some conditions if you develop parasites or you have really severe allergies. There are other, there are, you know, as a type of very rare leukemia where your eosinophils go up really high. But if it's just a little high, a few percentage points high, and it always is, uh, that that's probably just how your your thermostat is set in the bone marrow and you shouldn't worry about it. Stability trumps that normal range. You know how we get those normal ranges? We take people that we think are not sick and then we take uh, 5% off the top of the range we get from them and 5% off the bottom. And so the normal range is basically the 90% in the middle. And that means that, you know, in any given test, at least 5% of the people are going to be abnormal either too high or too low. Sometimes we'll use the 95th percentile. Sometimes we use the 90th percentile. But either way, we know there's going to be people too high and too low. Statistically, sometimes that matters. Often it's how high or how low you are that defines the disease, not just being outside that reference range. And you can see why your doctors didn't explain that to you, right? Because it took too long. So one of my one of my concerns with the acenophil was... And by the way, your explanations were very good because uh, I followed what you were talking about with the hemoglobin and the reabsorption and all that. I was, uh, when I took Latin, I was a very slow conjugator. Um, <laughs> that, <laughs> so I'm not surprised. That was a my, good joke. My hemoglobin. <laughs> so you might like that. Anyway, uh, the thing about the acenophil was a little alarming because I did work at Fort Ord as a federal employee. I was in the Army as a civilian, and uh, so we were working with a lot of toxic chemicals, benzene, xylene. Uh, I could go through a whole litany of stuff, but I was concerned because they were giving us, uh, the military was required to test the civilian employees, 
an industrial hygienist. They came and we'd have blood work done at the military hospital. And then they industrial hygienists would look at our blood chemistry. And one of the guys looked at my, one of the nurses looked at my blood chemistry and he said he was kind of concerned about the high acinophil because of the toxic chemicals we worked with. And that kind of, I'm going back, but it seems like I started paying attention to that kind of blood work, and I'm wondering if there would be a connection to being exposed to um, a very strong uh, toxic solvents like methyl ethyl ketone and other things like that. Well, uh, I just did, that was a very good question, and the only connection with eosinophils and toxins is something called is not going to be in your blood it's a mm-hmm. a type of alert it's, it's basically a tissue allergy in your esophagus that causes inflammation mm-hmm. and uh, it's called eosinophilic esophagitis i am primarily because of my functional medicine background i primarily focus on that with people who have esophagitis that doesn't respond to acid blockers and persists, mm-hmm. and I put them on an elimination diet, and they get better. So it's either wheat or dairy or soy or one of the other foods that unfortunately have kind of become frankenfoods in our industrial approach to food right. production here in the United States. And, you know, hunger in America, it's way down, but some of the by the unintended consequences of the measures taken in the 1970s to break the farm lobby have actually created a little bit of a problem. And, you know, too much too much corn being one of them, but that's, I am digress. Getting back to the eosinophilic yeah. esophagitis, that is a microscopic diagnosis when they do a, a biopsy. But there okay. isn't, but there isn't, and of course it, 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 that, and that particular condition there are a few cases of that being exposed to environmental exposures. So right. if, if you're, it, I think it's probably nothing, but what you would, you would be having pain when you eat, you'd be having heartburn, you'd probably be having uh, microscopic amounts of blood in your stool. So if you're doing those fecal right. immunoglobulin tests and there's, they're negative and you don't have yeah. a lot of GI symptoms, you probably don't no. need to chase this any further. Okay, I just see the numbers on the on the lab test, and anytime I see something that's not, you know, it's within the green zone, but it's right on the border, and I'm always going, "Is that about ready to go over?" No, probably so, not. It, especially what I look for is someone comes in with that, and they're red flagging on something. It's like, well, do you have it? Particularly with eos eosinophils, I would go, "Well, do we have an old test from two years ago?" And, you know, two years ago, five years ago, people come back, you know, or send me an email and there's like six labs and the EOs are always either just almost over the line or over the line. That's just individual biological variability. And if you want to look, if you want to go to any group of people anywhere and look at the size of their noses and the distance between their eyeballs, there's a certain range that's mm-hmm. we we all accept as just individual variability. In fact, it's how we use, it's what our brains use to recognize friends and people we know from strangers. And mm-hmm. if you've ever seen, there's this 
thing they call the uncanny valley in CGI and the movie business where you get something that's almost human and it's mm-hmm. but it doesn't move right or it doesn't it's just off a little bit and we get a, a creep out response for that and sometimes mm-hmm. with some of the children who might have congenital variations that affect their facial structure um right. I, there was a movie with Cher a long long time ago about a child who had I, uh, that uh, it's a fa- facial hyperosteosis if i'm remembering correctly it is a creep out response i mean you can and, yeah. and that was really what the story was it was about how devastating that sort of a variation in your facial structure would be for someone because no people cannot help it's an instinctive response like mm-hmm. you know when you see something rotting crawling, uh, crawling with worms there is a disgust response and it's pretty universal <laughs> you can train right, yourself right. out of it but i mean the first time i had to change a diaper on a baby i almost gagged and i got over it <laughs> it was a pediatric rotation i didn't have any younger siblings so and okay. well actually it was from baby it was babysitting and the pediatric rotation right. totally it's like eh nothing no no gross <laughs> at all but and parents are the same way if they've you know had an infant they get over it pretty fast <laughs> all right well thank you for the call i appreciate your question and i hope i've helped you your program is fantastic and i always support k squared i send you money so you're like one of the best in the world why well, thank you we appreciate that both the compliment I, I and the money. <laughs> on, I listen to you on the uh, internet app. I have a all around the world radio, and I got K Squid on it. So, well, I don't ever want to miss one of your programs. Well, now I know that I'm flattered because you said we're one of the best in the world, and you would know. So, yeah. thank you. Right. All right. You're bye welcome. for now. Bye. 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 Uh, okay. So let's. This email I wanted to get through, this came through the AskDrDawn.com website, where you can also explore the archives, uh, download recent shows, and, of course, subscribe to the podcast, please. That raises our visibility, and if I say so myself, I do think we have a quality show here, especially since we do it on a shoestring with all volunteers and as you probably figured out, I'm not advertising my, my medical practice or, uh, you know, s- selling um, green coffee bean extract. Okay, so getting back to Paul in Vermont, who writes, I await surgery for intractable cervical radiculopathy. In the past year, I've been seen by five different specialists and endured multiple epidural injections, facet, and transferaminal injections. Some doctors said I had signs of upper motor neuron disease, but a brain scan was negative, while others said I had conflicting symptoms. Ultimately, the consensus is that my C5 through C7 areas show severe narrowing confirmed by EMG. But along with the neck pain and right arm pain, I experience pain in my chest and even down in my sternum area. This is especially apparent to me when I change positions, especially when sitting bending forward, Driving a car has become almost impossible due to pain that seems to stretch across my diaphragm. Some specialists have said these symptoms are unrelated to my cervical issues, while a couple have assured me it's likely related uh, to that. Side note, I've been tested for everything under the sun for any abdominal or cardiac bad boys with no indicators of trouble. So my question is about nerve roots and how they work. Have you had any patients whose cervical radiculopathy has spread beyond its original site? Is this common, or am I yet another anxious patient? 
And then he says in parentheses, so reads my medical record. Well, first of all, Paul, I don't think you're anxious at all. I think you're doing a very good, clear job of describing a, a, a phenomenon which your physicians have found inexplicable. And as I read this, my head was going ding, 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 because it seems like this chest pain and the uh, sternum and that stuff has been progressive, maybe developing further down the line rather than as part of your presenting symptoms. And the fact that it has it that it's positional also raises the specter of this condition that I recently learned a great deal about. And over the last two years, I and one of my patients have gone through an amazing journey of discovery. He's a college professor. He knows his stuff. And it's it's a, an amazing story. So you've inspired me. I gave him a call. And we're going to have him on the show next week. Uh, and I will email you, uh, Paul, because I don't know when you'll, when the show will, this show will be up, but we're going to have him on the show next week to talk about his journey with something that took two years to diagnose, which is a cerebral spinal fluid leak. One of the things that this patient said to me when I told him a little bit about your letter was, were all of his epidural injections done under fluoroscopic guidance? That's basically with an x-ray camera running. They're often not. And in that circumstance, it's easy to puncture the epidural space. Another important thing that can puncture that epidural space and cause spinal fluid to actually leak out of the spinal column. And what happens is essentially your brain is floating on a sea of fluid. If you develop a leak, your brain sinks and comes into contact with the base of your skull. It's not supposed to do that. And it pushes on all kinds of nerves and can definitely uh, affect symptoms at a distance, not part of the part of the body that is normally innervated or reached by anything between C5 and C7. Headache, particularly if the pain spreads up to the occiput, which is the round part of the back of your skull, is one sign of this. And positionality is another. Another sign of it is developing ringing in your ears, which you don't mention and probably wouldn't think to associate with it. I certainly wouldn't. But if you develop uh, ringing in your ears after a fluoroscopy, you definitely want to be thinking about this, folks. Uh, Many people with cervical uh, arthritis, like you have, will also have little spiky things called osteophytes coming off of their spine, and those can create leaks. Also, people can just have leaks that develop after an accident. So I'm going to send you a PDF that would give you a, a something to try, and it's called the Stanford Flat Test. And you spend 48 hours flat on your back. You don't get up to do anything except poop. You try to lie down. And if you're male, it's really easy uh, not to get up to pee. So you try to do that. And you eat with raising your head just a little bit so you don't choke. But essentially what you're trying to do is stay flat on your back for 48 hours and see if some or all of the of the symptoms get better. During that time, you're going to build up your cerebral spinal fluid and that would result in improvement in your symptoms when you got back up 
and improvement in your functionality. So I'm wondering about getting into that position, leaning forward right away when you do this 48-hour test and seeing if it still hurts. If it doesn't, then I think you're going to embark upon the journey to try to find where the leak is and try to get it patched. CSF leaks are common. I learned about them in medical school because when a woman has epidural anesthesia for childbirth, which is fairly common, we will will go in down in the lumbar spine and sometimes the day or a week after they've delivered the baby, the woman will suddenly start developing terrible headaches and those headaches get better when she lies down. And that's what's happening. Basically, the brain is does not happy touching the skull. It wants to be floating and it's not floating and it's upset. When you lie down over the course of several minutes, those headaches get better, but it goes right back again when you stand up. We treat that by doing a blood patch. We actually take some blood out of the person's vein and we put, we put it at the level, L4 typically, of the fluid and we put maybe five cc's of blood in there and it coagulates and the coagulation forms a patch and the, the uh, dura heals like skin does before the before the clot melts and then you've got, you know, you're, you're solid again. That works really well if you can get, if you can find the leak. But where, if you have a leak and you respond well to this 48-hour flat test, then it's going to be a search finding it. So next week, we'll be talking to one of the world's experts on CSF leaks, uh, my patient, and he's kindly consented to tell his story. I think you'll find it very interesting. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.